hello again, friends, and welcome to the Young Anglicans podcast. The Young Anglicans podcast is a place for conversation and discussion about ministry to teenagers through the lens of Anglicanism. It's hosted by me, Andrew Unger, and me, Eric Overholt. We're both real-life Anglican youth pastors who want to see young people find and follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. We're glad you're with us. And we are joined today by a very special guest. We, we actually did show prep this time, and we got a, a, a new friend of mine who I know is going to become a good friend of mine to come and join us. His name is Peter David Gross. He's the executive director of Wheatstone Ministries. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks. Um, so I wanted to start out, Peter. Um, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, I know you grew up in California, but tell us a little bit about your education background. What's your connection to youth ministry? How did you get into doing youth ministry type activities? Yeah, well, I got into youth ministry stuff completely by accident. Um, I, uh, I've been at Wheatstone now for about 13 years and um, didn't intend to stick around uh, when I showed up. It was just a sort of undergraduate part-time job to add on to the rest of them so I could pay for school. Um, and then accidentally fell in love with it, and here I am now. It's terrible. <laughs> you get stuck. Uh, but yeah, you, so I've been working with uh, youth ministries um, across denominations uh, for over a decade. Um, my studies background is philosophy and anthropology um, through Biola University and the Tory Honors Institute. Um, I'm married to an incredible woman, Amanda, uh, finishing up a PhD in Shakespeare at USC. We've got two cute kids um, and live out here in Southern California, making the juggle work, the two kids plus two jobs juggle. It's great fun. <laughs> yeah, I had the great pleasure of, of hanging out with Peter. We were talking about ministry stuff yesterday, and uh, we we were joined for the afternoon by his two-year-old son. Wesley is his name, yes? Mm -hmm. um, and we had a great time. Uh, he's a really, really cute kid, and uh, he was very good for us while we, while we chatted about camp. So Wheatstone Ministries... Uh, you guys got started as a as a summer camp mostly, uh, but I don't want to talk for you, Peter. Tell us a little bit about what Wheatstone Ministries is, um, and then your your connection to that, which you've explained a little bit. Go a little deeper into that. Great. Um, yeah. So the the goal behind Wheatstone is pretty simple. Um, we want to reform youth ministry by um, uh, directing youth pastors and churches and parents toward a, a new purpose, a new goal for that ministry, which is inviting youth into Christian adulthood. Um, we think that uh, the sign of a successful youth ministry is one that offers a really clear and beautiful vision of what Christian adulthood could be before they leave home, before they leave um, their their teens, their youth. Um, so that's that's the overall picture. We do that right now in two ways with summer camp, like you talked about, Eric, and also by training youth youth pastors and their volunteers in our methods for inviting youth into Christian adulthood. Um, five different training events that we offer on site um, for the best professional development day you've ever had. I know that's a low bar, but we definitely exceeded <laughs> in that sum. <laughs> Indeed. I have been to one of the Wheatstone, in addition to, to being a part of their camp last summer, um, I have been to one Wheat, Wheatstone training event, which was called Discussion for Transformation, um, which I would it would probably be better for Peter to talk about what that is, but I don't want to get bogged down in that. Uh, it was great. I will say this. It was great. Um, and actually, this is what I'm going to pitch. This is not an official Young Anglicans pitch. This is an Eric Overholt pitch. So I want to make that clear. But you should come and join us at Wheatstone Camp on campus at Biola from July 19th through the 25th this coming summer, 2020. Uh, come and be a part of it. I was a part of the leader track this past summer. I will be a part of the leader track again. I will be. And um, I was surprised that it wound up being camp for me. And uh, it was a really important experience for me. I know I've shared a little bit about it on this podcast, so I, I won't overshare again. But it was an important week for me as a human being. 
Um, and so thinking about inviting students into a week like that, I think is really um, a really good thing. So come and bring students if you can. Uh, more information at christianadulthood.org. I got that right, yes? Yep. Awesome. So the, the question I, I think is probably on everybody's mind uh, when you start talking about Wheatstone and what it is that you're doing, uh, you're saying we're inviting students into Christian adulthood. Um, what do you mean by Christian adulthood? What, <laughs> yeah. what is, what is Christian adulthood? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's, it's a, a term that actually means two different things at the same time. Um, on the one hand, it means something really simple, which is entering adulthood and having that adulthood be Christian, a sort of social adulthood. Um, uh, the thing that everyone goes through no matter what, uh, uh, you, you have to become an adult, whether you like it or not. <laughs> you can <laughs> stay a childish adult, um, or you can become a mature adult. Uh, but you're going to be an adult one way or the other. So the first half of what we mean by Christian adulthood is, as students are entering adulthood, we want to offer them a Christian vision of that. And the second half is um, what uh, so many of the uh, New Testament writers are talking about. Um, the author to Hebrews, Paul and Ephesians for um, growing up into the fullness of stature of Christ to mature manhood um, so that we're no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Um, leaving aside the milk of uh, Christian teaching and moving on a solid fit, a stage in the Christian, um, that could be called uh, childish Christianity, which I think is an important part of the Christian faith, that we, we come to Christ as new babies, as new children um, initially, and uh, we have a job just like in our biological and in our social lives, in our spiritual life, to grow up and to become mature Christians as well. Um, just like uh, you know, marriage or so many of these other real-life social things end up being ways for us to understand the Christian life. You know, uh, we learn a bit about the kind of union that Christ wants with us by looking at marriage. Um, we learn a little bit about the kind of love that the Father has for us by looking at the best of human fatherhood. Um, in the same way, I think God wrote a metaphor into our biology and into our societies through adulthood, that, that we can look to the kind of blossoming of joy, the kind of blossoming of authority and freedom uh, that, that the living with Jesus offers uh, by looking at the change from childhood to adulthood as well. So Christian adulthood in the sense of growing up into the fullness of the stature of Christ and also um, Youth are defined by becoming adults. Like, that's what a youth is. A youth is someone who hmm. isn't a child and isn't an adult, and they're on the way to adulthood. Um, so let's help them have a vision of a Christian one. So those, those two things at the same time. Yeah, so go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, I, I'm really struck by this idea um, of giving them a vision of Christian adulthood. Um, it, it sounds to me like... Sometimes I hear when people talk about like endless adolescence, their critique is like, oh, they're just kids forever. So we have to sort of make them do adult things like there is a there's a programmatic forced way of doing it where there's like, OK, now you now we're going to give you responsibility and you're going to do it. Um, and it seems to me like the idea of giving them a vision, it, it calls to my mind like um, James K. A. Smith's You Are What You Love. Everything calls that to mind because I love that book so much. But it's an incredible um, book. <laughs> right. But but this this idea that you're you're seeing an imagination of something, your imagination is inspired by the kingdom and you think about potentials because you're able to imagine them. Um, I don't know how that kind of language excites me about this transition into adulthood. How have you seen that? Is this distinction I'm making actually part of what Wheatstone does, or am I just kind of reading into no, no, that's, exactly, that's core. Um, and I think it's much more important than any set of behaviors or, or, or mm -hmm. frankly, responsibilities that we could offer youth. Um, enforced responsibilities are basically doomed once the force is removed, once the authority mm -hmm. of the people trying to enforce it is removed. 
but um, an entry into the combination of liberty and responsibility through desire is uh, much more likely to last. There's a sort of internal engine that the student has based on these hopes, based on these desires. Um, well, I mean, based on faith, hope, and love, uh, in a sense, that that uh, is much more reliable to keep them moving forward. So, and, and there's a way in which um, this is a particularly um, vital, <laughs> to use a, a medical analogy, it's a particularly vital uh, project right now because, um, you know, leave the church aside, just the, the American or the Western imagination for adulthood is particularly impoverished at this moment, at this mm -hmm. moment in history. Um, it is the death and taxes thing. It is the, you know, I, I go to high school audiences and I ask, you know, how many of you have heard some adult tell you these are the best years of your life? It's always about a third yeah. of them have heard that sentence from an adult, which is so depressing. Like, if you peak at 18, what's the point? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, so replacing that um, vision of drudgery um, with a vision of uh, mystery and romance and in the, in the broadest sense possible, mm -hmm. grief in the deepest sense possible, um, and, and of identity, um, uh, is, is this like huge light switch that can flick on inside, uh, youth's hearts and their minds. Um, um, it gives hope for something bigger than themselves and it gives them a way to move forward. Yeah, that's, I was just reading a, a Vox article with some of my students and it was some youth pastor who wrote it and they were talking about anxiety that students, the, the teenagers have. And part of what the, the writer was saying is that it used to be that the, you put in hard work in high school so that you get some payout at the end, right? Like, like work hard now, get good grades so that you go to a good college and have a good career. But nowadays there's no hope on the other side of it. Like, and, and I, there, it's just, this is what life is like do lots of clubs because life is terrible and you have to do this thing. And eventually it'll be a job, which you'll also hate. Um, but it's almost like they're preparing for the adulthood that we've offered them, which is drudgery. Um, and I asked my students, I asked my student leaders like, okay, is this, is this actually what it feels like? They're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just stress all the time and there's no payout. And I was like this, I am so depressed for you, and I'm even more depressed that you're that you think this is normal, that there's nothing right. beautiful on the other side. It's like instead of instead of like these are the best years of your life, and eventually it'll be boring, we've taken the boring and like drawn it back into childhood and said, like, well, let's just get into the boring right away. Yeah. Um, rather than saying like the the beauty you feel as an adolescent, the the things that spark your imagination now, can have a mature outlet later. They can they can have a different telos later that turn into something not just not just like a childish crush, yeah. but like romance. The friendship will be more desirable. Be real intimacy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, like when you meet a really mature adult, not one of them would want to go back to relive their high school years again right now. Yeah. They, <laughs> every mature adult that you'll run into thinks they have it better now and hopes that they'll have it better again in 10 years, regardless of their circumstances. Um, Wheatstone's, sure. Wheatstone's motto is never stop growing up. And it's the mm -hmm. thing that we just keep trying to pound in for our students. Like, hmm. this is the beautiful opportunity. Um, you don't even ever need to press pause. Um, and especially in the context of a Christian imagination with a new earth and a new heaven yeah. uh, and a community of joy, and everlasting life with the embodied Christ, like you need never stop growing up. So why not start tackling the projects that could last past death? Why not um, start investing in yeah. things that um, would otherwise seem threatened by that? Hmm. I, I, and I, I actually think this is, and I know this is the Young Anglicans podcast and we're talking to youth pastors and stuff, but actually this is, uh, what we're talking about now is a big part of the reason why I, I actually think this idea is useful for more than just youth ministry. Um, because I think there's so many adults, even within the church, who have bought into that the idea that the best parts of their life are over. Um, and Sky Jatani is a, 
a pastor and speaker uh, who's had an important impact on my life. If you're from the Chicagoland area, you probably know who he is. Uh, if you've listened to the Phil Vischer podcast or the Holy Post podcast, you probably know who he is. Anyway, he he's just someone who's had an important uh, impact on my life for various reasons. And what he talks about the role of a pastor being is exactly what you were saying, Peter, of, of casting a ra- what he, the words he uses are a ravishing vision of life with Jesus. Uh, and that and that this is, in fact, life. It is what we were created for and it's what we're promised in Christ is actually the way of life as opposed to the way of death. Right. Uh, and it's what we should all be preaching to everyone, uh, whether they're teenagers or 90 years old or somewhere in between. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the important thing to note when we're having discussions like this is that it's the it's the correct vision of life. Yes. It's not the gussied up one. We're not doing a sales pitch. It's not like Christian marketing, let's slap on some happy. Um, no, the, the way of the cross and the way of resurrection is a ravishing future. It is the beautiful country. It is. Uh, so, so we don't need to try. Like the things that we already have at hand, the things that we've inherited, the things that the Trinity uh, confirms and reveals and offers are ravishingly beautiful, and we're just doing a bad job if we aren't um, uh, recognizing that clearly. Yeah, I I just read um, Great Divorce for the first time uh, in preparation to talk to my students about hell. Um, and and I mean, what you're saying, like thinking about everyone, I'm going to spoil Great Divorce for you. Thinking about the, the like ghosts, <laughs> the ghosts versus the real people, like this, and and time and time again in that book, people are offered. The, this different, completely like solid way of living, and they're like, "Well, no, I can't forgive that person because because they didn't forgive me enough, and I, I can't do this." And, and it's like the the people who are who are real and solid are like, "You you just don't even get it." Like all of the things you're concerned about, like you're asking the wrong questions and you're coming at the wrong premises. And there's just this amazing better way that is just more solid to live. Um, and that to me, that's some of the the winsomeness of the Christian message in the way of the cross is that like you meet people who who aren't Christians and and it's like they they have all these different ways of approaching life and they've crept into the church in a lot of ways and and the immature sounds derisive but it is immature right like it is they're just more important and better things and and the way of the cross frees you from being so petty and and I don't know it that the biblical realness. term is childish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's and it's hard because that it, it you know that that comes across to some people. I mean, you probably get this all the time that with with your mission statement, the people probably take offense at it. But there is a sense in which no, like be a grown up, like really do this and, and live into it. And it's not it's not bad or worse or drudgery. And you wish you could be a child all right. over again. I mean, one of my favorite. Um biblical insights about this is that maturity uh, leaves behind childishness and grabs a hold of childlikeness. Um, That, in fact, the only way to be childlike in your adulthood is to grow up. That um, people who try to cling on to a childish way of living end up with something that's drier and staler and unrewarding and unfulfilling. That the person in their 50s who's trying to live like they lived in high school uh, can't get that back. But the person who uh, endures and, um, and and does enter into liberty and responsibility and authority and stewardship and um, confronting mystery, confronting pain, confronting all of the real things of the world directly rather than in a mediated way, the person who does that mm. actually gets to a place of meaningful childlikeness uh, that becomes a spring of joy in their souls that no circumstances can take away. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, childhood is beautiful. Childhood is glorious. Um, it's precisely because I want to preserve the glory for as many of my youth as possible that I want to call them to grow up because I see way too many childish adults out there who are miserable and who make everyone around them miserable. Um, mm. I honestly think there's nothing more dangerous in the world than a childish adult. Um, they can childish adults reliably do more harm to people's souls than any other category of creature, maybe uh, devils excluded. Um, 
uh, and um, so so it's it's dangerous to enter childish adulthood. It's unrewarding. The the childhood that you're trying to cling on to isn't going. To, it's going to turn to dust in your mouth. It'll start out like honey and it'll turn to dust. And hmm. um, and it's it's just no fun. <laughs> so so why not uh, take up your cross and follow Christ um, into the into the blessed country? Um, why not be kind the kind of person who can rejoice even in suffering? Um, why not become a person of faith, hope, and love? And and I think that that message, um, if it is given to students feelingly and in a way that they can imagine themselves embodying, mm-hmm. um, you know, not just not just someone talking at them about this, but but they begin to feel the patterns developing in themselves. Um, they begin to um, hope. Uh, they begin to have people that they can follow. If if these concrete things are in place for them, then then um, we can see it start to happen. Oh, um, man, there's so many places I want to go with this, but <laughs> uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back just a little bit to something you were saying, Peter, because it's something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about. I was thinking about it a lot. I mentioned it to you while we were at camp back in August, July. Um, that I was thinking about it, and I've continued to roll this around a lot in my mind for the past few months, and that is this distinction between childishness and childlikeness, yeah. uh, and childlikeness being something that is, in fact, commanded by Christ, um, that in order to re- receive his kingdom, we must receive it like a little child. Um, but you're coming at childlikeness like from a different angle, like it, it's one of the different facets on the diamond. I've been coming at it from this place of, of, of embracing qualities of childlikeness, things like exploration and curiosity and wonder and uh, embracing qualities like that that uh, put us in a position to grow and put us in a position to understand that there is something that I am lacking that I can I can seek to receive and that that will move me into a pl- further into a place of maturity. You were coming at childlikeness from a little bit of a different angle. Yeah. Um, at, can you just go back to that a little bit and, and suss that out a little more? Yeah, sure. So uh, I don't think I would disagree with what you said. Um, uh, but you're right that the way I was talking about it was more as the fruit of maturity than the cause of maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I think that that vision comes to me mostly actually from uh, experiences through my childhood. Uh, My family and I would go after church to help run a church service at the local convalescent home every Sunday. Um, And we got to know the population of people living there. Um, And there was a kind of 90-year-old who, you know, if you're in a convalescent home... I'll say I never saw a family member in this place. Like it, hmm. we didn't just go on Sundays. It was, uh, and it smelled bad and it looked bad. And, um, if they're there, they're an in incredible physical pain. Like there's very little that seemed redeeming about this location. Like I, I trusted the staff. I appreciated them, all that sort of thing, but it's, I don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. Nobody wants to be there in this particular convalescent home. And, um, but there was a, a kind of saint <laughs> um, who, in the context of all that loneliness and abandonment and ugliness and pain, would notice that the friend next to her was having a bad day and share her chocolate pudding because that was the best thing on the menu. Um, or who would turn to me and ask me how I was. Uh, and when I complained about something as a ridiculous junior hire, like actually hmm. tear up and empathize with it. Mm. You know, if there was a competition of griefs, <laughs> the ninety-year-old, so and and who could have their faces light up for these old hymns that they were singing in a way that I didn't have access to, but I did at one point when I was first singing them as a little kid, or was it when I was first coming to recognize them, um, and who could even like play games and chuckle from their wheelchair. So what I'm saying is. All of the very old people who I've met who I want to be like are people who, even in the bleakest context of the 
pre-death human condition um, can preserve the kind of wonder that you're talking about, can preserve the kind of playfulness, the kind of empathy and interest in other people. And I think that that is, in my experience, only the result of, um, of maturity. And especially, in my experience, the result of maturity with sanctification. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those, those women, especially in the convalescent home, um, are sort of my guide stars for the kind of future that I want to have and the kind of childlikeness that I want to pursue. Um, it was earned through hardship and responding with joy and gratitude, such that that joy and gratitude became strong enough to be able to endure in any context. Um, such that they had peace that passed understanding. Mm. Um, uh, well, I, yeah, um, I don't know if you've ever thought about, you know, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, the Bible offers peace that passes understanding, and I, I only fairly recently realized the implied threat, um, which is uh, that you would be in context where peace was incomprehensible. Hmm. Um, uh, that that's that's part of the state of affairs that often or sometimes humans will be in places where peace is naturally incomprehensible um that's not being taken away by the peace that god offers instead he's offering a peace that's strong enough to endure through such contexts and and these ladies in the convalescent home taught me that so yeah childlikeness is the fruit of maturity yeah so good I actually just want to share something that everything that you're saying makes me think of. Uh, if you don't know the song, Andrew Peterson has a song called the queen of Iowa. Uh, it's on his album called the far country. And if you don't know this song, this song is exactly what we're talking about. It, like the whole message of that song is everything that we're talking about. I offer it. It's one of my favorite songs. It is not on Spotify. Um, it is almost the reason why I would switch from Spotify to Apple music. I'm not there yet, but come join the light side, (laughs) but it is, uh, find that song, find some way to find that song. If you have Amazon music at last, I knew it was on Amazon prime music. The queen of Spotify. Is it on Spotify? I just looked for it. Spotify, the far country. Andrew Peterson must've caved. So, um, God bless him. I am now going to put that (laughs) song on repeat. Uh, Anyway, I, I highly recommend that song. It is exactly it is all about exactly what Peter's talking about. So anyway, we'll put it in the episode notes. We'll put a yes. link to the YouTube song. You know, we'll we'll find some sort of link to share with everybody. Awesome. Okay, Andrew, did you have any questions, or should I? No, I I, I do, and I don't know where to to start either. There's lots of things that are bubbling in my head. Um, I loved that difference between the that distinction between childish and child, like partially because as a as a now youth minister who's been doing it longer than three years, I'm in. Congratulations. You know, yeah, like I'm, I mean, you're like 12 or 13, but early on, you sort of realize that like for the first few years, everyone's like, oh, you're 22 and you're just going to be silly. Um, and that's their expectation for you as a youth pastor is to be silly like the kids. And that's how they'll, they'll be able to take their medicine of the gospel because um, you're going to wrap it in their childishness. Yeah, um, I, I really think the gospel needs that kind of thing to be attractive to people. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a sin to bore a kid with the gospel, right? I yeah. mean, okay, we don't need to go there. Um, <laughs> but but the the idea is that as you get older, I've certainly hit a point where like incoming sixth and seventh graders no longer like want me to be their cool big brother, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so that's a, that's a shift. Um, and since we are allegedly a, a Anglican youth ministry podcast, I think, what does it look like to encourage and how do you help train youth pastors, especially those who are in their first few years where they can kind of have a, what appears to be success with their students that really just cashes in on the fact that they're young and they want to be, and the teenagers want to be cool like their youth pastor. Um, how do you help them make that pivot? out of childishness, out of sort of really cashing in on their cool card and instead saying, okay, invite them to, to a certain maturity when in some senses for a 23-year-old youth pastor, it's the same project as the project for the teenager, um, if that yeah. question makes any sense. So I'm going to start by saying something uh, uh, harsh. <laughs> 
they shouldn't be a youth pastor. Hmm. Like the people who hired them were incredibly foolish. If if you're describing someone accurately, and you know we're not talking yeah. about any given person right now, but right. who should be the spiritual uh, and relational guides for our youth before they leave home in a culture where that's mostly characterized by moving away? Mm. Not a childish Christian. Hmm. Um, what's the time when most people leave faith? What's the time when most people start to develop a mature faith? I, I think of youth ministry as the church's front line in the West. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't send your untrained, unqualified troops to the front line. Um, um, it is simply wrong. And um, I'm just going to get a little fiery, condescending yeah. and short-sighted to think that youth can only identify with someone who is childish. Um, that is not the case at all. Youth have, especially with today's technology, an endless supply of access to, to fun and all the rest of it, but they have no one who can teach them how to grieve the pains that they're newly facing uh, with, with newly rational capabilities and a new kind of uh, emotional state. Um, they don't have people that they can talk about death with directly. They don't have people that they can talk about romance with in a way that isn't, um, you know, check these boxes, don't do these things, do those things, don't do this, but actually mm -hmm. full of yeah. life. I don't see today's American youth looking for more distractions. I don't see them looking for, for more outlets. For They have plenty of that. I see um, people that they can be real with. Um, yeah. people that they can engage with, with, with seriously death, fear, pain, like the, the things that adults are expected to face directly and kids aren't, um, they want to look at those head on in my experience. And when they find someone who says, Hey, let's talk about death. Um, it's incredibly attractive. Um, so, so one of my hopes with Wheatstone is that we become a voice that's clear enough to stop um, hiring committees, priests, pastors all across the country from hiring immature Christians to lead the youth. Um, yeah, that, it is the most foolish thing that many churches do. That That's a new vision of youth ministry, right? Because um, I, I think about how hard it was for me to go from being the guy that volunteered with the youth youth group at our church for almost 10 years to being the guy who's now the youth pastor and how, how much of a, like a, a shift in the brain of leadership at my church that was, um, it, yeah, I, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Cause I have only been a youth pastor officially for three years, even though I've been involved in youth ministry for 15. Um, but, and, and, oh, testimonies that I'm receiving is like, oh, wow, it's really nice to have someone who's like organized and mature and is thinking pastorally with the kids, uh, like leading our youth ministry. Um, anyway, and, and uh, that what is not on me. Th that is not on me. That's, that's on the Lord. So thanks be to God that he's leading, leading the way for me. But part of the reason I'm so fiery is actually another little personal story. When I was in high school, our, I think third youth pastor left, <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> senior year, and um, our head pastor gathered us older youth group members together and said, hey, what do you want in a youth pastor? And we asked, you know, could we have a little bit of time to talk about it and get back to you? Scheduled a meeting with him, and we, like, sat down, and we took minutes, and we, like, thought about it, <laughs> and we argued, and we came back to him, and we said, we want a grandparent-aged couple who's been married to each other for their whole life who can lead us in a Bible study through Romans. Preach. And they said, <laughs> and they got us a 20-something who was into spitting crickets, and I stopped going to youth ministry. Wait, and, what is spitting crickets? Oh, well, <laughs> what you do is you put a cricket in your mouth. and A live one? Facing a live cricket, and you wait for it to jump, and then you also spit. And you try to make the cricket go, you know, 10 times farther than it would have gone if it was just jumping or if you were just spitting. Um I would sit in the corner while this was happen, happening and mutter barbaric under my breath. But, you know, 
Yeah, I was weird. <laughs> uh, so, so I, I, I might just be weird. Like, but my experience with Wheatstone is that um, you know our camp doesn't just attract uh, the sort of kids that you'd think of as leaders in the youth group. You know, we've got two mm-hmm. GPAs and four GPAs uh, from a, you know people from public school settings and private school settings and across denominations. And um, uh, we usually have like 97% approval ratings at the end of camp or 100% approval ratings every once in a while. So I believe that this is the cultural moment for the church to say, this is the place where you can come uh, to encounter reality uh, and to find bigger, deeper, truer, more awesome things than you'd be able to find anywhere else. Peter, just so you know, I, I've told you a, a number of times since I met you three or four months ago um, that w- everything that you're teaching is like singing the song of my heart. Um, <laughs> I, th- this time last year, I was in the middle of rebranding. I, I don't like to use the word rebranding, but that's what it was, rebranding our youth group um, because we had become over-identified with Youth Alpha and rebranding it to real time. Mm. Um, and that was long before I met you, but but it was for all the reasons that you're talking about. Right. Um, but, but I wanted to, I want to push back a little bit on something. Great. Um, or at least I want to talk back, talk a little bit about something. Um, so the, the Salgas, California, the Salgas high school shooting in Santa Clarita, California, it was a couple of weeks ago. And, and that's actually just uh, like 20 minutes from our church. Uh, and one of the students in our youth group doesn't go to that school, but goes to kind of a sister school and knew um, one of the kids who died um, and knew of the student who did the shooting. Um, and so because it wasn't this like distant thing, um, I felt like we needed space as a youth group. Like we have to find a way to talk about this or at least create the space that if the students need to talk about this, let's talk about it. And so um, instead of playing a game one week, I said, you know what guys, let's just sit. We're going to sit in a circle and I'm going to try to lead a discussion and, and talk about it. And really the only thing I could get out of the students in that half an hour that we very patiently tried to confront death and like violent, ugly, horrible death. Um, the only thing I could really get out of them was like, I, I don't know. I don't even know how to deal with it. I don't even know how to think about it. And what became clear to me is that they, they have no space to process it. And maybe these kids were a little on the younger side. Most of them are freshmen. The oldest of them are freshmen. Um, and I can understand a, a sixth, seventh, eighth grader. It's like, yeah, I have a hard time processing this things like this. So mm-hmm. it's, but I wanted to create a space. Actually what the most effective thing in that conversation wound up being me just saying, Hey guys, God is grieved by this. God is mm-hmm. deeply, deeply grieved by this. Uh, and he came to save us from these things. And I followed that up with just, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry this happened. No, I think that's absolutely right. So um, I, in the moment of crisis, in the moment of overwhelming confusion or doubt, in the moment of overwhelming grief, um, overwhelming pain of some kind, um, that's almost never the moment to understand yeah. um, what's going on. It's almost never the moment to think. Um, it's, it's the moment to lament. It's the moment to find companionship. Um, it's the moment to um, weep. <laughs> um, but this is one of the reasons why I think youth ministry needs to more clearly recognize that while you know kids go through horrible things as well but there's a different biological intellectual and emotional status that teenagers have just arrived at that make the experience of of these things of death of um romance of of all of it qualitatively different than it was before and um it's not enough for us to wait for them to stumble into those things and um, and then sort of react, we should actually be proactively equipping them um, with uh, an imagination for death, with teaching about death, to, to keep using the, the topic at hand, with all these things before they're in the crisis, 
so that their lament can be deepened and transformed, um, so that they have resources at hand ready for their tears. Because um, you can't you can't teach someone per se in that moment. Yeah, you're right. You know that that strikes me that like Old Testament wisdom literature lamenting is usually it's in response to something, but it is often in a sense accusing God because of what is known about God. It's God, I know you're not like this. I know this is the case. It it comes from a place of deep knowledge of the character of God and the confusion that sets in when the world doesn't seem to a doesn't seem to match that. Right. Um, and, and, and I think that like not that, experiencing way. Yeah. Not experiencing that is fairly dishonest in most cases, or else super, super sanctified. Um, (laughs) But it's probably not going to be possible um, for our high schoolers (laughs) um, to experience these things without that kind of disorientation. And the good news from the Bible is that that kind of disorientation is part of the experience of the people of God, that it's, it's not a deviation from the way of the kingdom, that it's part of the way of the kingdom and that God takes pleasure in and um, inspires, directly inspires our very confusions themselves. Um, uh, He sees that they are good for us and that they are good in themselves. Um, So so we need to be people who, who teach students, equip students to lament beautifully at the time of their grief, who equip students to pursue their desires. And again, when, I, when I've been talking about romance throughout this podcast, I do mean it in the relational sense, but I also mean it in just the like, try and make something, try and build something, try and mm. claim something, you know, go out and be romantic, you know, be, be led by your desires, take the risks, fail a few times, that sort of thing. But to be the sort of people who can take those risks beautifully and faithfully, um, and, and well, um, to be the sort of people who can look at confusion and not be swamped by it, but stand on faith and endure, uh, until the light shines. Um, th- these are the things that we need to be loading into our students experience of the church before the moment of crisis. Um, it's not enough to be giving them pizza, gum and games, pizza, gum and games, pizza, gum and games. Oh no, a huge tragedy. Let's sit around and talk, um, which is not uh, what I know. It's not what you do, Eric. But um, but unfortunately, it's what a lot of youth ministry does. Um, there's a kind of uh, assumption that our main work is defensive, to keep students inside a uh, pure, safe environment. Um, and. I am tired of defensive youth ministry because I think it bears the fruit that we see in our society um, so clearly just after youth ministry, which is most people leaving. Um, I'm interested in youth ministry that goes on the offense and offers them hope. I think it also bears the fruit that we're seeing in the church. If I can continue to just indict the church, which it seems like all I've I've done. All I've done yeah. today, uh, but I think I, I I think it's the same thing that we see within the church as well. And I, just as you're talking, and, I, and I'm thinking back through my own life, and and as I'm as I am like trying to trying to do the kinds of things in youth ministry that are not what necessarily I did when I was a teenager, uh, but wanting it to be richer, wanting it to be uh, uh, this call into this beautiful life. Um, what I'm what I'm realizing is that I, I love youth ministry was a really important time with me and it connected me with God in a certain way, but I think that was mostly because it connected me with the church. Like and, and that was good. It wasn't bad, don't misunderstand me, but it, it was incomplete. Um, it didn't create it didn't create this path toward maturity. It didn't set me on the road toward maturity and get me moving in that, that direction. Uh, it did introduce me to God and and put me in relationship to God, very personal one. Um, which is good, um, but but it didn't it didn't do this, and it's it, it did help me to fall in love with the church, and it's part of the reason why I've always stayed connected to the church, and God has always had a hold of me because uh, I've always stayed connected to the church in that way. Um, 
but I, but I'm realizing the, the limitations of that at the same time and that, that that's not the fullness of the stature of Christ like you're talking about. Yeah, I, I'll just say, why don't we just throw in another um, uh, <laughs> confrontational and disputable <laughs> assertion, um, which is that it would be better for a lot of our youth for them to um, uh, honestly walk away uh, externally in the way that they're doing internally in the context of our care and affection for them, um, rather than behaving like Christians until the second that they're free from our community. Um, uh, th this, this mythology that we can keep our kids Christian is hmm. fundamentally unchristian. Um, that's not, we don't have the power to save ourselves much less someone else. Um, and the, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of salvation is not threatened by uh, our doubts, our fears, all the rest. And the generosity of God remains with his people and his desire for their salvation remains with his people all the way till their death. I don't know why we're playing short-term games with our youth and trying to create an illusion of Christian behavior um, and protect them from the temporary evil, evils of their time instead of asking them to honestly consider Jesus and uh, safely um, attempt to grab hold of the adulthood that they're grabbing a hold of anyway on the inside uh, in relationship with us. Um, we, we, we are pursuing false goals pursue uh, the, the enforced preservation of our youth's salvation. Yeah, there's a, there's an element of risk. I mean, we could talk a whole separate episode all about risk and how that oh, plays yeah. into youth ministry. You know, I've actually gotten worse at it as I've, as I've grown and wrestled with some of these questions and, um, come up with sort of more sophisticated answers for myself. I've gotten worse at leaving questions hanging with the youth group because I've, I've have all these new insights and all these ways that I'm processing that I want to share with them. So right. this semester, you know, the, the, my curriculum has been about asking questions and letting them wrestle with it. And many weeks I've just spoon fed them my last decade of thoughts, which may be helpful for them, but I haven't done any risk work. My, my students actually said like, what if you, we're using Fuller's Can I Ask That series where they go through all these sort of tough questions. Yeah. And they they properly indicted me that it's really just been <laughs> Andrew shares his takes on controversial issues. And uh, and they said, like, <laughs> what if you just asked the question and didn't do anything else? Like, you just left it. And they said, would it be okay if we were wrong? Yeah. Um, and and I, I wrestle with that. But I think uh, I've joked that at least in an ideal version, it doesn't always find its way into practice. But I joke that ideally, I want my youth ministry like get your existential crises in early and often, yeah. Um, while they're teenagers, while they're still here, while they're now part of that requires a parental buy-in of like keep coming to this community, right? Like there is some sense that there's value I think in parents saying, um, you you might not be there right now, but I want you to keep giving this a try while you're in in my house, and allowing them to be honest that like we know you're not. We know you've walked away from this. We know you don't believe in the bearded guy in the sky and you think it's all nonsense, but we want you to just keep trying. I think there is value for parents to say, yeah. just keep showing up. And then we can, if we leave the space for a for someone who completely rejects Christianity entirely to still be around and ask their tough questions, yeah. I think it does do a lot of good, but there's so much risk there. And parents yeah. do not like the idea of us saying, hey, I'm going to get your kids' existential crises in now. Yeah, because um, I want them to ask their difficult questions. Um, yeah, this this would be a very different conversation if we were talking about parenting rather than youth pastoring. Um, and yeah. the the question of how to um, talk to parents about what we're doing, about how to make them um, allies of this or participants in it. Um, but I mean, tons of thoughts there, and it's really difficult. Um, just like any paradigm shift is. Um, but frankly, the one thing that I'm 
quite confident of is that the existing paradigms for youth ministry in America and the Western churches are is not working. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know very many people who disagree with that. Right. Um, yeah. So there, there is a, there is a, a trick <laughs> um, to working with parents, but, um, and, and I agree that parents, um, that it's responsible for parents to use uh, their existing authority um, mm-hmm. and the um, developing more contractual style relationship with their kids who are becoming adults yeah. um, in, in ways that are uh, canny, <laughs> strategic, mm. wise. Yeah. Um, I'm all for that. Um, youth pastors don't have that kind of economic relationship, don't have that kind of pre-existing authority. So there is a kind of pastoral uh, companionship that they can offer. Um, but zipping back to the what you were talking about with um, your students asking you to let them think, um, yeah. Uh, which again, thinking is very different from receiving ideas. Um, yeah. and repeating ideas is very different from having them yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. mimicry is different from thought, but, um, I think that Jesus isn't the only example of, um, teaching and leading people but Mm -hmm. he's not a bad one (laughs) (laughs) premise a um and the thing that's so startling about his way of leading his disciples for me over and over again especially in the gospel of mark is the way in which he um refuses answers yeah uh uh there's uh Mark, in particular, highlights this in a big way. Um, Almost every chapter leading up to the exact center of the book, which happens to be the Transfiguration, almost as if it was intended. Um, (laughs) uh, Almost every chapter, a different population of people is saying, who then is this? Who then is this? Who then is this? About Jesus. The disciples say it. The Pharisees say it. The crowd say it. Um, uh, It's like a bell being hit over and over again in the first half. And the only people who answer the question for the entire first half of the book are demons, um, as if it was the most um, obnoxious and troubling thing that they could do. They're constantly popping out and being, uh, you know, bad evangelists, like he's the Christ, the son of God. He's saying the things that you'd think people should be saying, uh, the demons are. And Jesus always tells them to shut up. And nobody else says it. Um, And you finally get to the center of the book. And there's a series of three stories back to back that I think go together because of this theme. Where Jesus finally turns to the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Um, Obviously because he was, you know, lapsing for a moment and had forgotten and needed help. (laughs) No. Uh, He's asking them to say who he was because um, he needed it to come from inside them, not to be put into them. You know, that just in the same way that it's what comes out of a man that makes him unholy rather than what goes into him. It's the things that come out of people that make them holy, just not the things that go into them. Mm. Um, uh, and I mean, you know, Eucharist and stuff, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he turns to them and says, who do you say that I am? And, uh, Peter gets it right. He says, you're the Christ. And Jesus is like, A plus, good job. And then he turns to the crowd immediately and says something to problematize Peter's understanding of his correct answer. Um, He immediately says, (laughs) I'm going to die, which I am quite confident that Peter had just ruled that possibility out based on his theological understanding of who the Christ was. Yeah. So he says, you're the Christ. Jesus is like, great, but then he sees a way that that Peter is replacing him with Peter's theology. You know, I've got this theology of the Christ, so you're you're going to conform to that. Jesus says the thing that contradicts that to the crowd. Peter pulls him aside and literally says, you shouldn't say that to them. You're going to confuse them. (laughs) 
Like, sorry, parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Jesus says the nicest thing anyone says to anyone else in the Bible, which is get behind Satan. Um, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. Apparently, the thing of man in this case is Peter's theology, which was pretty good for what it's worth, and his fear of confusion. Um, and uh, after that rebuke, the very next scene in Mark is Jesus transfigured before Peter um, with Moses and Elijah on either side. And the voice of uh, God the Father booms down and says, this is my son, uh, confirming it. And then he says, listen to him. As in, you think you understood that, shut up and keep listening. Um, keep following. <laughs> and I think that this like reveals a way in which Jesus is fundamentally unconcerned about confusion, about temporary error, um, and massively concerned with asking people to listen to him and pay attention to him until they know who he is by following him. Um, and I think that that model is not the only way to teach people, but it should be recentered in a new way for youth pastors. That that we need to um, be so invested in helping our students come to uh, Christ and faith and deeper knowledge of the truth themselves in a way that they can hold on to forever. That we're willing to to wait a little while and endure through their confusion and uh, errors in the process. Um, yeah. You. Uh, rhetorical question, um, do you identify more with um, ideas that you have been uh, offered or ideas that you have come to yourself? Um, everyone identifies more with ideas that they have come to. Um, do you identify more with something that you found or made or something that you've been given? You identify more with the thing. Um, and we want our students to identify with this faith. So we need to be invested in helping them find it and make it and remake it, just like every generation has to do, um, to retell the gospel again um, in each of their lives. So, um, yeah, I, I want to affirm your students, affirm curricula <laughs> like the Fuller one, uh, and say we need to produce faithful thinkers more than we need to produce people with faithful ideas in their heads. Um, we need to be able to produce people who are following Jesus, who are pursuing him, who are seeking him, and trust the Holy Spirit that those who seek will find. Um, the danger isn't getting it wrong partway through the process of seeking. The danger is stopping from seeking. Um, people who leave faith and become confident in their lack of faith and stop seeking the process that got them there wasn't the danger. It's the moment when they stop asking, when they stop seeking. And I also honestly think that there are many Christians who have stopped seeking God, who are in danger of the same error as the Pharisees, um, or of Peter in that story that I told, um, who have replaced God with their theology of God, um, and effectively pray to their ideas instead of to the living one. Um, and enter into a kind of religious idolatry. We need to be people who are seeking, who are ready to endure through the death of our ideas, through the death of our um, uh, felt goods, um, so that we can come to the resurrection that God has for us instead of one that we make for ourselves. I will add a, a, a CF to that. Um, see the, the the first few chapters of J.I. Packer's Knowing God, mm, which so is good. all about that. Okay, um, man, so good, uh, Peter. I knew that once we got to talking, it would be hard to stop, and it is yeah. <laughs> very, very hard to stop. Um, hopefully, we can have you back at some point, and we can start yeah. riffing on all these ideas some more because it's so good, so thought-provoking. Uh, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your honesty. Uh, just thank you for being you, Peter. Um, it, it's been a treat to know you these past few months. Likewise. Um, Thanks for having uh, me. Our tradition is to end our podcast with uh, a prayer, and um, we've been very good. We've been using the new 2019 Book of Common Prayer from the ACNA. Woo, woo. And uh, yes, <laughs> and um, 
I am going to end actually with the collect for the first Sunday in Advent, which is most appropriate, but I also find it very appropriate to our conversation. So the Lord be with you. With thy spirit. And also with you. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, in the time of this mortal life, in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility. That, in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Peter. Grace and peace, friends. Thanks so much, guys.